Hey everybody, it's CJ again, wishing you still a happy Halloween, if you're listening to this shortly after it comes out. And a happy whatever time of year you're at, if it's not around Halloween time when you're listening to this episode. This is DHP episode 190. This is the second half of my conversation with Joshua, formerly of the Dusty Den podcast. And this is the part where we talk about horror novels and short stories. So check out part one if you haven't already, the episode just prior to this where we talk about some horror films that are our favorites in a couple of different categories. And since this was actually a full-length, you know, nearly three-hour conversation, I'm going to just drop us right into where we left off last time as we switch gears from talking about horror films to talking about horror fiction. So here we go. Okay, so flipping over to novels. I have very similar tastes in novels as with movies, which probably isn't surprising. So again, a lot of the same things I like. Slow building, ominous atmosphere, believable characters and settings to counterbalance whatever crazy shit might be going down, all that sort of stuff. So unless you have anything you want to say just at the outset or drop your number five novel. It's not a... Not a big shocker. It's nothing, you know, supernatural as as far as like the kind of selection that it is. I guess it's technically supernatural, but uh, it's going to be Bram Stoker's Dracula, 1897. So very old. And the reason I like it and the reason I picked it is because it's got an interesting narrative structure, which isn't even, it's difficult to even call it, um, a narrative structure. It's, uh, I, th- I think the way you say it is an epistolary, uh, or a epistolary, which it's told from like different diary entries and newspaper clippings and things like this. It's not really told by one singular character, uh, or from like a third person point of view kind of thing. It's told almost in vignette format. And it, th- it, Mary Shelley did that in 1818 with Frankenstein as well, but I just think uh, Bram Stoker does it better. And I like the the vampire. I like that kind of a character. Uh, it, it influenced H.P. Lovecraft. It influenced a lot of people. I think if you look at the Francis Ford Coppola movie, of all the Dracula renditions that have been done, if you're interested in the one that is closest to the book, my personal opinion uh, would be that it is the Coppola version uh, of Bram, Bram Stoker's Dracula. But that's the one I picked. Vampires are scary, and I think it's a good way to get it started. Yeah, yeah, very good pick. I guess I'll go ahead and spoil it and say that's my number That's my number two pick on this list. It is my favorite of those like classic 19th century horror novels, for sure. And um, yeah, it almost the, like what you were saying about the way that it's structured and everything, it's almost like the novel equivalent of a found footage film in a way where it's almost like presenting itself as like these, this collection of primary source documents or yeah, something that's, like that's that. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And, um, and I, I read it pretty young for, 
for that sort of a novel. And yeah, it really grabbed me pretty good. So it's actually my, my number two pick. Big influence, obviously, on the entire vampire genre. It didn't quite create it, but it virtually did as far as a lot of the lore goes. And still, I think, you know, is arguably uh, the, the best vampire novel. Um, with Salem's Lot being a close second, but Salem's Lot is to, yeah, is oh to yeah. a large extent based on Dracula, just, you know, transformed into a 20th century setting and all that. My number five horror novel is one that's a different kind of horror from a lot of what we've been talking about. A few things we've talked about have, have fallen into this category. It is The Store by Bentley Little. And it is like social commentary satire horror. And it has to do with the, it's a, it's a fantastical horror version of the story of the giant box corporate megastore coming to a small town and disrupting things and, you know, driving the small stores out of business and disrupting the community and people's lives and whatever. And, you know, it's one of those, probably not many people have read it, so I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but it is... And, and Bentley Little, a lot of his novels are like this, and some of them are better than others. A lot of them are these sort of like social commentary, social commentary horror things, which do mix in some some typical horror tropes, you know, monsters and killings and you know these sorts of things. But um, oftentimes with a very strong social satire, social commentary element. And of the Bentley Little novels that I've read, it is the one that I think does the best at doing that. And there's some disturbing stuff in this novel. Um, there's, there's some, some things that will make most reasonable people uncomfortable. I'll just say that it's, it's, it's not for the super easily offended or squeamish. It's another thing that's in a lot of Bentley Little's novels is, you know, uh, sometimes things of a, like a sexual nature or whatever that are a bit outlandish, but, um, but it is a, is a very powerful type of horror when used, you know, in a, in a skillful fashion, I think. So, that's my number five top horror novel. So what's your number four? Number four is my only Stephen King entry, uh, which is Pet Cemetery from 1983. You get the, the gray line in there, sometimes dead is better, <laughs> um, which is really interesting. Uh, to me, the book is about hanging on and the refusal to submit to nature and the consequences of doing that and the consequences of not learning your lesson. I think even in the end, um, a lesson, a lesson isn't learned. It's just about that desire from human beings to be able to control one of the main things that we can't control and, you know, bring something back or hang on to something and, you know, the consequences of, of fiddling around with mother nature. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. It's a, it's a different kind of zombie movie, right? And I, I think it's brilliant. It's the subject, if you just you talk about the plot and things like this, you might say, okay, well, that's weird and creepy, but is that really scary? And it is. The way King writes it, it is horrifying. Um, both both from a, like, I don't want to turn out the lights kind of perspective. And also just from a putting yourself in the character's position, like mentally, you know, in a, in a deeper way. Uh, I think it works on multiple levels. 
um, a superficial level and then a very deep philosophical level. So I think it's a great, great book. And a lot of people put it or uh, The Stand or some of these other books of his at his number one, but I think Pet Cemetery is his masterpiece. Yeah, it is, I think, one of his strongest books. I think it is his strongest book as just a pure horror novel. And it, I mean, the, the movie's pretty good, but it's not, it's not yeah, one it's okay. of my all-time favorite favorite horror films. It's, you know, it might be in like my top 30 or something, but um, I, I don't think the the movie quite nails it. Um, in particular, I, I don't like the actor they have playing Lewis Creed. I, I don't. No, King's stuff works better as books. It just does. Yeah, I mean, some of the other actors in the movie I think are great. I think the, the guy who plays uh, Pax Cow is, is really good. And um, uh, what's his name? Herman Munster is awesome as the... <laughs> as as uh judd but but the fact that i i don't really like the guy who's playing the main protagonist kind of sours the movie a little bit for me but it is such a good uh, such a good novel from the standpoint of it really kind of grapples with what death is and in in many ways is an updated expanded version of one of my favorite short horror stories of all time, which is of course the monkey's paw. And that story may or may not be on my list of favorite short stories. We'll just, oh, we'll just oh, it may, may or may not be on mine a little, as well. Yeah. Do a little <laughs> foreshadowing, but yeah. Um, my number four favorite horror novel is every dead thing by John Connolly. And I have not read John Connolly. Um, there's a few of his novels. I've, I've not been a big fan of, but he has this series uh, around a protagonist named Charlie Parker, who's a detective, and the series kind of mixes hard-boiled crime with supernatural and horror elements and things like this, and doesn't do it in a cheesy way. Um, doesn't do it in, in like a you know a, a, a pastiche sort of a way. Does it in a in a natural feeling kind of a way. And uh, eventually, the Char- Charlie Parker novel series kind of lost me, but. The first four or five maybe novels in that series are excellent, and Every Dead Thing is the first one. Part of what I think went wrong with the series is the early books are all written as first-person narratives, and I think John Connolly just writes it so beautifully. Um, it's a very literary style, but but very very readable and kind of just pulls you in. And some of the later ones, he writes third-person, and I don't think they're as good. And I, I think there's a few... Um, themes that he starts to deal with and whatever that kind of derail things. But man, the first few Charlie Parker novels by John Connolly are just excellent. Excellent. And so very uh, effective genre blending novel. So if you're a fan of hard boiled crime and serial killer type stuff, you'll probably like it. And if you're a fan of horror, you'll probably like it. And if like me, you're a fan of all that stuff, you'll love it. So that's a, that's the next book I'm reading. Yeah. Go check it out. Every dead thing. All right. You're number three. Number three is another classic, nothing too out of the realm of what people might expect. And that's the haunting of Hill house, 1959 Shirley Jackson. Very good. So it's been a while since I've read it. It's inspired a lot of writers and a lot of filmmakers. Um, But I, I like it because it's the classic ghost story. It's the classic haunted house story, but it even takes it 
to another level. And I think that's why Shirley Jackson is like an inspiration just for probably too many authors to even list. I mean, Stephen King, all these people like, you know, have talked about her. And I think it's also modern enough to appeal to different types of readers. That's another reason I wanted to include it as it's some of, some of the stuff that I've picked is kind of old, not the Stephen King King book, but some of the other stuff on the list is, is a little bit older, but uh, it's, it's that 1960 era, you know, right, right when a lot of this stuff was really peaking. And the characters are really good. It, it basically follows four, you know, main characters who are invited to stay at this house to investigate supernatural activity. Um, one of them's, you know, a, a paranormal investigator. One of them is, you know, a recluse uh, that sort of just decides to show up. She ends up being sort of the main center of attention for the, the paranormal activity in the house. Um, and it, it, I like it also because it's very open-ended, something we've already talked about, about what's going on and how much of this is real, how much of it is not real. And the end leaves it open. Uh, like a, You can kind of interpret, put your own spin on the ending, which is something, again, a film I forgot to mention uh, that sort of, I think, does this well too where you don't really, at least through most of the film, you really don't know what's real and what's not real is Jacob's ladder, but I don't want to get too sidetracked. So the haunting of Hill house, I think is, is a solid number three. It's a great ghost story that kind of just gives you the chills and keeps you guessing through it. Keeps you on your toes. It's, it's fun to read. Yeah. That's definitely one that I'm a fan of. Um, It's one I need to reread. I haven't read that in a very long time, but Good pick. Well, uh, my number three is Summer of Night by Dan Simmons. I have not read this one either. Highly recommend this one. It is, I think, the best possibly of the subgenre of horror novels that deal with adolescence coming of age. And I actually like it better than something like it or some of the other Stephen King novels. I I like some of his, you know, novellas and things on this, like the body, you know, are very good. Mm -hmm. But as far as a full length novel that combines horror with like the sort of, you know, kids coming of age type stuff, I really like summer of night. There's one other book I'll mention in my runners up for this that I like even a little bit better. That's also a coming of age one, but it's less of a straight up horror novel than uh, Summer of Night. But Summer of Night is just a great combination of, if you love those those classic movies and books that deal with like a group of kids, you know, that are facing some sort of threat or horror or whatever, it's really, I think, hard to beat Summer of Night. I can't believe it hasn't been made it to a film, although I'm kind of glad it hasn't because the way horror novels are often adapted to film, there's like a 70% chance it would be dog shit. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I can definitely see it being made into a film by a competent director, like a, I don't know, a Spielberg or, or somebody like that, who, who's good at those sorts of that, that sub genre. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there you go. That could be Carpenter's last film. <laughs> yeah. 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 If he could, if he could, you know, pull off one more good one, one, one more left in him. Um, it, it, uh, and, and there's a sequel to it that I'm blanking on the name, um, that deals with them. Uh, deals with one of the the kids from the novel coming back to the town as a as an adult, 
that's also very good. It's not quite as good as Summer of Night, but it's it's very good. And yeah, I pre- I prefer Summer of Night to it for sure. It's a it's a leaner leaner novel. It's a tighter novel. And um, yeah, huge fan. So your number two pick for well, that novel. that segues perfectly into my number two pick because my number two has to a little bit to do with the innocence of adolescence and the difference between adults and kids and things like that in a little more of a subtle way, but it is something wicked this way comes the 1962 novel by Ray Bradbury. Very good choice. Ray Bradbury. I I told you before who my three favorite authors were, but he, he's a could be number four and he's arguably my favorite short fiction, right? Like a short story writer. So Ray Bradbury, and I'll probably touch more on this later. He was one of the Southern California sorcerers. It was sort of like a club of very prolific writers. You had Rod Serling, who did The Twilight Zone, Richard Matheson, who I've talked about before and we'll talk about again, Robert Block, who did Psycho, uh, who else? Uh, Harlan Ellison, who did uh, the very best Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, Charles Beaumont, who's probably the most pro- prolific of all of them. He wrote The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau and uh, several Twilight Zone episodes. George Clay Johnson, uh, William F. Nolan, they both worked on Logan's Run. All these guys were friends. And anything by them is incredible. Any sh- anthology you can find by them is definitely worth a read, especially Charles Beaumont's and... uh and of course, Ray Bradbury's. But the novel is got this setting, and the setting is like a town that's invaded by this carnival. And he, even one of his anthologies, his short fiction anthologies, is called Dark Carnival. He loved the setting. Bradbury loves carnival. He loves the weird and unusual. He loves using uh, mirrors as symbolism for what the truth is. Uh, a lot of his stories and books, all this stuff is used. He's sort of a master of like foreshadowing and mood and symbolism. For me, like a lot of the, a lot of those, and I don't want to say garbage, but a lot of the things that like eighth grade and ninth grade English teachers give their kids to read, uh, they should be giving them something wicked this way comes. This is a book you should read when you are a freshman um, to understand foreshadowing symbolism, how to create mood. I mean, it's just sort of a a lesson. It's like a clinic in how to write a scary, foreboding story. And it blends horror with just sort of the fantastic uh, and supernatural. It's really good. And it, it very much is about a dark carnival, you know, that comes to town and starts sort of taking over the citizens in various ways and how these two adolescent kids are going to stop it uh, with the help of, of uh, an aging father, uh, Will's father, who's, who's a little bit old in the book. And that, that plays into one of the themes. But I think it's a, it's a classic example of how the genre can sometimes get no respect because uh, as far as literary prowess goes, uh, I think I think Bradbury's got just as much chops as anybody, uh, but you know a lot of times the, these works are just looked at as pulpy. But uh, it's great, great. It's classic good versus evil, and just like you, you were just talking about it and how you like this one better. To me, it remind this reminds me a lot of it, but it is written in thrift, and I just like it better. It just appeals to me more. I think it's more creative. Yeah, it is actually. 
not one of my favorite Stephen King novels. I know it's got a big, got a big yeah. following. Yeah, I would. Stephen I totally fandom, agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's overrated in a lot of ways, and I think both of the film adaptations are also overrated as well. And I, I also like the message of something wicked this way comes, which is overwhelming about the power of positivity. Um, it's about how you defeat evil by being good instead of begetting more evil. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's got a very positive message. Yeah. I'm a huge fan. This one was one that ended up in my honorable mentions instead of my top five. And, but it, it was in my top five multiple times as I was moving <laughs> things around or whatever. Yeah. And it was one of those ones I agonized over um, because I'm a big fan as well. And uh, it, it's just, it's, to me, it's, it's the ultimate Bradbury novel in a way, because it gives him the opportunity to just go full on with all of that, like all of that, that vivid nostalgia that he's so good at evoking. It's just the perfect thing for him to do that with. And it um, it's, it's just so well-written and it's so evocative and and as a as a history guy i mean it it's so evocative of like pre world war 2 america as well where yeah. you you realize like what a different country it was sort of small town norman rockwell kind of yeah. kind of a place you know yeah yeah it's totally true it's um very hitchcockian in that sense too like it um it's transportive and it it's just guy he's just he gives you nostalgia for a time you never even knew personally. Yeah. And it's, as far as I know, it has to be like the original novel of that subgenre of kids dealing with some sort of, you know, supernatural threat or whatever. I mean, there's no, I can't, if there is any other novel that was like that before it, it got, it got no attention because I've never heard of it. So could be, could be. So it, I think it's a, it's like a subgenre founding novel in a way. So my number two was Dracula. So okay. we can we can skip that and then Pet Cemetery is actually my number one. So. Oh man, we've already covered those. Just to review, I forget those I think that was my number four and number yeah, my number five and my number four. So Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to only have one Stephen King in my top five, even though there's there's a few other Stephen King novels I yeah, love. Yeah. But um yeah, that's my pick as it's one of my favorite Stephen King novels. There's a few others neck and neck with it, but it's my favorite Sting, uh, Stephen King novel as just a straight up horror genre novel. You know, some of my other Stephen King stuff I really like is stuff that's maybe not always pure horror. But Me too. This is, I would agree. This is just like one of those just like straight up, no question about it. It is a horror novel, and so and and it was probably only like the second or third Stephen King novel I read when I was a kid. You know, I started reading St- Stephen King novels in like fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. And I read the Bachman books. That was, that was my first introduction. Believe it or not, the very first Stephen King novel I read, and I still have my battered old copy of it is, is one of the most unusual Stephen King novels he ever wrote. Eyes of the dragon. No, I have not read that one. So it's a, it's a freaking fantasy novel it's like a (laughs) it's like a sword and sorcerer and and honestly i haven't i haven't reread it i've read it a few times i haven't reread it in a long time um but it's the very first stephen king novel i ever read and that got me hooked and it's one of his less known books and still one of my favorites of his interesting but um yeah so hey if anyone wants a bonus uh book to check (laughs) out they probably have never read 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 eyes of the dragon um even though i i probably haven't read it in at least 15 years 
but I still have my battered copy that I got new in like 1990 or whatever. So, um, well, just running really quickly through my honorable mentions for novels, something wicked this way comes, um, Salem's lot, probably my second favorite Stephen King horror novel, uh, boy's life by Robert McCammon. Okay. Rob, Robert McCammon is, I think one of the most underappreciated modern horror writers. He is, you know, definitely a tier or two below Stephen King in fame and attention and popularity. But I think he's right up there with Stephen King in terms of skills. And when he's at his best, he may even be slightly better than Stephen King. I know that's heresy to say. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't love every novel I've read by McCammon, but there's, there's a bunch of his novels that are super good. He's a very good writer. And Boy's Life is probably my favorite like nostalgic coming of age story with some supernatural elements and things like this. It didn't make my list in place of Summer of Night, even though I like Boy's Life slightly better than Summer of Night overall as a novel, just because Boy's Life is a little bit less straight up horror novel than Summer of Night. But it's one of my favorite novels of all time, Boy's Life by Robert McCammon. So I would urge anyone who's never read that book to read it and, and check out other stuff by Robert McCammon. He is really good. A couple other runners up I'll just mention briefly Ghost Story by Peter Straub, very, very good horror novel, and um, Legion by William Peter Blatty, which mm. was, of course, the, the basis for Exorcist Three. So any, any honorable mentions for you you'd like well, to I still have my about? number one to do. Oh, shoot. Ah, how do we skip that? Sorry no, that's that. all right. That's totally Go all right. Go ahead. Go ahead and drop it. The uh, it is. I've already talked about it as because we talked about some of the films that it influenced. But I am Legend, nineteen fifty four, Richard Matheson. Oh yes. Um, I I also had podcast about this book in its entirety and all the themes involved in it before. It is, Matheson is sort of he's like the precursor to George Romero as far as zombie invention. The the uh, the book revolves around a character named Robert Neville. Uh, who is is pretty much is the last man on earth, uh, which is what the film <laughs> in 1964 was titled. Uh, the the Vincent Price film we already talked about. Uh, there was two other film adaptations from it, which was the Omega Man starring Charlton Heston in 1971. And then the, of course, I Am Legend with Will Smith. And that was in 2007. That one wasn't quite as good. I think the last man on earth is the most faithful to the novel. I like Richard Matheson's writing because he writes in thrift. There's no bullshit and it's, it's dark. Like he gets right to the nuts and bolts of what it is to be uh, stuck in the situation that he's describing. He was, I think the second or third most contributing member to twilight zone episodes, him and, and Charles Beaumont, again, two members of the, the sort of Southern California club writers club or the Southern California sorcerer, sorcerers. But he he's so very pro- prolific, and of all those guys, I would say he's the least of the fantastic-minded and the most just outright brutal. His, his his writing and his descriptions are brutal, and there are just some gut-wrenching parts of the book. Uh, it's short, it's a quick read, uh, and I love it. And it's one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, but. Uh, definitely my number one horror novel. Yeah. Nice pick. Very good. I've, 
I've not read, I've read that of course. Um, and I've read a few other things by Matheson. I've not read a ton by him, but it's not because I don't want to. Yeah. yeah time enough to I read get it. Thing. Because every, everything I've read by him, I've liked. And obviously I'm familiar with like how much he did for, for, you know, TV and twilight zone and all these sorts of things. So um, definitely a master of yeah. the genre. All right. Just real quick. Uh, some honorable mentions. Um, I just sort of went a step further and did some overlooked books, but I'll be very brief. One of them, also an underrated film, but is The Dead Zone by Stephen King. I think that's one of his more underrated books. That was from 1979. And uh, it takes, it's not straight horror. It's, it's got sort of like a reluctant hero kind of vibe. Uh, the movie was directed by uh, David Cronenberg in 1983 with Christopher Walken and Tom Skerritt, who was an alien. But I, I just, I don't know. I, there's something about it that's creepy and eerie, and uh, it's really good. The director of the film, David Cronenberg, actually also did two very, I think, underrated films that I probably should have talked about earlier, too, uh, which is The Fly Remake, Videodrome, and not horror, but he also did Naked Lunch in 91, which he nailed. He did very good with that. But the the Dead Zone, my most underrated, I would say, Stephen King book. Uh, my number, my or my next one uh, that I would say would could arguably be in my top five would be The Trial by Franz Kafka. Again, a different kind of scary. Uh, and there was a 1962 Orson Welles film adaptation, which is pretty good with uh, Anthony Perkins. But uh, the book, The Trial, if you're going to read anything by Kafka, who's probably my favorite, arguably, I think The Trial, it beats Metamorphosis out and all of his other stuff. The Trial is definitely where it's at. It was published uh, posthumously as well, so it wasn't anything he got credit for during his lifetime. My next one, I got three more that I would mention. I had to pick something that I felt was very topical. <laughs> so I'm going to go with the 1953 play, The Crucible by Arthur Miller, about the, or the uh, 1692 Massachusetts uh, Salem witch trials. Uh, which It was an allegory for McCarthyism and the HUAC and all that. Um, but I, and it just explores mob mentality. And I think it's horrifying about how humans can be horrifying. Um, and we create our own monsters to do our own horrifying deeds. And, uh, I think, I think that's very topical right now. I think it's something everybody should, should read and, uh, just, then just turn on the news. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a new McCarthyism yep, 100%. going around. Yep. Definitely some witch hunting. Burn the witch. Poor old Tulsi. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but she's been the latest yeah. victim. Number I this I do have a number two here, and I, the reason I want to bring it up is because it was one of your films, and mine is the Wade Davis book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, uh, which is from 1985, and it talks about the case of um, Clarvius Narcis. I can't, I can't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name wrong, but it's all about Haitian voodoo. You already said a lot about it about the the 1988 film, so I won't repeat it, but. I'll have to check it out. I've never read the novel. It's it's awesome. It's like a anthropological work by uh, by Wade Davis, who was an anthropologist uh, by so, trade. So it's it's actually a nonfiction book. Yes, it's about a, it's about a the the specific case that he researched, uh, basically about how they make zombies in Haitian voodoo. About how they they basically they use this uh, this tritratoxin to 
knock you out and it makes you appear to be dead because the way that um, post-mortem and stuff like that is done in Haiti is, is, is vastly different and they don't have the technological advances. So this, this drug makes you seem like you're dead and then you know, they bury you very quickly there. And um, the people who have done this to you, then they, they grave rob, they, they unbury you, and then they give you basically a bunch of psychedelics over and over and over and over again um, to where you're kind of brain dead. And then they you know, release you out into the wild and everybody thinks that there's a zombie there. Um, so it is about, it follows the book, the movie is very well done. It very much follows. And Wade Davis helped work on the, uh, the movie with Wes Craven. But uh, the book is really cool. It's 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 even more creepy because you know, though some people have said he's exaggerating, but uh, um, it's it's really interesting to know there's at least kernels of of things that are very real in there. Hmm. So, yeah, very interesting. I'll have to check it out sometime. And my number one is probably yeah, it. I could arguably <laughs> the trial might be my favorite book, but. Um, I'll be I'll be really quick with this one, and I won't go into the plot at all. I'll just tell people to read it if they read nothing else from this author, who's Cormac McCarthy, which is Blood Meridian. Uh, not straight horror um, by any stretch, but it's horrifying. Uh, so that's what I would pick as probably the number one book that if it's difficult for me to even read reread because of how horrifying the content is, which describe some real life incidents of like the Glenn gang, uh, and you know, mid 1800s. So. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's one of those ones that's sort of been on my list to, to check out sometime, but just haven't gotten around to it. Very scary. All right. That's, that's novels. We knocked them out. Okay. Now short horror stories or horror short stories or whatever. I didn't specify in our emails about this. I didn't pick any uh, novellas or novelettes as short stories. I kind of stuck to like a, you know, kind of traditional. I did as well. Okay. So, because there were several not uh, novelettes and novellas that, you know, I love that I just decided, yeah, we don't, you know, they don't quite fit and, and, and I don't want to make yet another category. <laughs> so, um, I will say though that I do feel a little bit different about about short horror stories than I do about novels and films in that I actually don't like a real slow build in a short story. I want to be I want to be grabbed like not necessarily with a giant jump scare sort of a thing but like, you know, I do want to be hooked early on yes. or I or I'm not going to keep reading a short story whereas I'll give a novel or a movie a little bit more, you know, patience. Um and I actually really like short horror stories where the structure is almost like a classic joke structure where it's almost like set up punchline only, you know, it's set up and then horror. So I don't know. There's, there's the, a a lot of my favorite short horror stories have that where it's like something gets set up and then you get smacked out of left field with, you know, not, not even necessarily what, what you would think of as a twist, but like some some sort of a bang at or near the end. Yeah, well, I do. I don't, I think the twist is a good short story mechanic. I think it can, I think it's a lot of times a, a twist or a little something extra at the end is what gives a short story like it's staying power. And uh, like, I, 
it's hard to do that. It's hard to write in thrift and to still have a really good story. You know, it's, I think it's a short story to do a good short story is extremely yeah. difficult just because there's so much you want to say and you've got to develop these characters so quickly. I'm curious, I'm curious to hear, why don't you start us out? Like, so I'm curious to hear what yours are. Okay. My number five is the Washingtonians by Bentley little, which can be found in his collection of short stories, which is entitled the collection. Okay. And this is one I talked about a long, long time ago on a fairly early dangerous history podcast episode. I think it was the one on the whiskey rebellion. Okay. And I was talking about like some of the darker aspects of George Washington as an historical figure. And this story deals with that. This story deals with, um, and there was a not so great, but okay. Um, uh, what's, what was that? Masters of horror, uh, episode on this. Okay. That it was pretty good, but the, the story's better, of course. <laughs> um, and it's basically the setup is somebody finds evidence that George Washington was actually like a, a monster serial killer or something <laughs> like this. And then as he's like going to expose this or trying to figure out what to do with this information, then he starts getting pursued by a secret society called the Washingtonians who are, you know, trying to preserve uh, the, the, the image of George Washington and these are and you know, I won't say anything more w- without ruining things much, but it's a, I like it because I think it's a very effective short horror story in general, but it's also got this like history and conspiracy angle to it that really is unique, I think. Awesome. So it is a really cool short story. That's great. So what's, what's your number five? A, a classic from 1846, Edgar Allan Poe, The Cask of Amontillado. Very good. Yep. Uh, it's one of my greatest fears is like the fear of somehow being buried alive. I think maybe that's why, um, serpent and the rainbow works for me too. <laughs> like, I don't know, but, uh, that I, to me, that's just like the most horrifying possible thing. Uh, you know, two characters, Fortunato and Montresor. Um, and it's just a revenge tale and it's very short. It's very quick. You know, one of them's lured down to the catacombs and sort of imprisoned and entombed. And it's a great, it's, it's just a great, quick, scary revenge story. I think it's the best, you know, forget the Raven. I like the cask of Amontillado. Yeah. Poe is uh, pretty good when he's, when he's on, you know, I've, I've been a fan of Poe since I was a little kid. Gothic short stories. Can't beat them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a pioneer as far as uh-huh. American horror goes in a lot of ways. My number four is an author I've already mentioned uh, in regard to novels. It is a story called he'll come knocking at your door and it is by Robert McCammon. I've read that. Yep. Yeah. It can be found in, the collection of his short stories called blue world, which I absolutely love almost all the stories in this thing. It is just a great short story collection. Some, some diversity as far as, you know, topics and all that sort of stuff, but um, very strong. A a lot of short story collections all end up feeling the same way about them that I do about like a record album or something where it's like, I love three of the songs and the rest of them I can take or leave. 
but um, Blue World, almost every story in it, I love. And this one is just such a great, punchy, relatively quick, again, has that kind of punchline at the end kind of in a dark way. And um, yeah, check out Blue World, anyone who's, who's not read McCammon. All right. And you're number four. My number four is a, I, so Shirley Jackson had an entry uh, with on my novels that I liked, but now she has an entry on my short stories with the lottery from 1948. Yep. Very good. It's a classic. Uh, I actually read this in school when I was in, I don't want to say what this was one of my first exposures to reading something that was kind of horrifying. Um, and it's so great because the short story builds up. You don't really know what's going on. And then till kind of like right near the end, then you're like, oh, this isn't great. This is horrible. Uh, and it sort of has, and it gives you that like culty kind of vibe. It's got that like, oh, these people are crazy. <laughs> like, you you kind of get that thing uh, where everyone seems like relatively normal. And then uh, all of a sudden it's terrible. It was actually so kind of like ahead of its time. Uh, I read that somewhere that like when it came out, when it was published in the New Yorker and it caused like a huge rocket, people were like canceling subscriptions and writing hate mail in there um, and everything. And she had to like explain why, you know, why she wrote it and, and her opinion on it and, and things like that. But, you know, if you cause that big of a ruckus, you're doing something right, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely a masterpiece of like social horror. Yeah. You know? That yeah. all that stuff of the 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 scariness of of group. We're the monsters. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my number three. I I had a tough time picking from amongst my favorite Lovecraft stories to to only pick one to put in my top five, and the one I finally settled on after much moving around and and manipulating of things was Herbert West Reanimator, and. There's, of course, the kind of cult classic movie, Reanimator, from the 80s. And that movie's as much of a comedy, honestly, <laughs> as it is a horror film. I mean, it's a lot of fun, but like very few people watch it and go, like, that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more campy. It's more like, you know, I don't know. Not it's like quite a cult as, classic. As, yeah. As, yeah. It's, it's almost a little bit Army of Darkness in terms of it's just, you know, not taking itself too seriously. But, the original Lovecraft story, I think, is one of Lovecraft's best. And it's actually, I think, pretty, pretty dark and scary. And in my mind, it's like right up there with Pet Cemetery in terms of just grappling with the overall theme of death and and trying to wrap your head around like what it really means, what it is. And if someone could come back, what would that mean? I, I think it's very good as far as that goes. Awesome. So that's my number three. Uh, my number three, I it's related to my number four in that it deals with some of the same themes. And it's also related to uh, the crucible, which I talked about already, which kind of the, the, like the, we are the monsters kind of thing, like how horrible human beings are. That's a, like a constant theme with something that creeps me out is how easily influenced and manipulated large groups of people are 
And but I did cheat. I went out of bounds. This isn't a short story, uh, but I had to include Rod Serling on there somewhere because he's one of my favorite writers. He just wrote for TV because he wrote all the Twilight Zone episodes, or at least most of most of them. So he wrote the monsters are due on Maple Street in 1960, which is my favorite Twilight Zone episode. It's the I think it's the last one in the first season. It might not be the last one, but it's definitely in the first season. And it was sort of a commentary on McCarthyism to just like uh, the Crucible. And it has great characters, the, the, the episode does, but the writing by Sterling is just brilliant. And it's about like just the frailty of human rage and mob mentality and how quickly, how, how easily and quickly we turn on one another when we should be focused on an outward threat instead of creating our own, our own monsters to slay. And it's just, it's really interesting. It still speaks to me and it's a brilliant episode. So if you're only going to get on Netflix and watch one Twilight Zone episode that I think shows you how brilliant of a writer and creative person that Rod Serling uh, was, it would be The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Yeah, good choice. That's that's definitely like one of the best all-time Twilight Zone episodes. And even The Simpsons uh, parodied it, parodied it in um, <laughs> yes, yes. one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes many years ago. So that's when you know it's like entered the the popular mind. My number two, my number two short story. Um, I had a hard time picking. There's a lot of Stephen King short stories that I like. I actually think sometimes he's even better at short stories than at novels. But the one I finally settled on to put on my list is The Mangler, which can be found in Night Shift and which they made some kind of cruddy movie or short movie or something on it. It was okay, but it was nowhere near as good as the the story. And it's... For a Stephen King story, it's relatively lean and brief, and it does a good job within a fairly short story of establishing the threat, building some tension in ominous mood, and then having a punchline at the end, so to speak. So it's, I think, one of his just one of his most perfect short stories that like you can hardly think of anything that could have been done to make it more effective. So the mangler what's, what's your number two? Uh, my number two is an occurrence at Owl Creek bridge written in 1890 by Ambrose Bierce. I don't know if I'm saying the name right. I'm really, I bad, think it's just Bierce Bierce. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you've read it. It's it takes place in civil war, Alabama. It's about a hanging and, it is gut wrenching and it has a twist at the end. And the fact that it's written so matter of factly highlights the brutality of what was the civil war and just the lack of regard for human life. Um, you know, that you could say about any war, uh, you know, both you and I have similar opinions on the, on this subject, but I, I just think it's captured and written brilliantly and again, it's, it's more serious in terms of, of horror. Uh, I hesitated to put it on the list, but it is something that I do. It has some sort of like fall, autumn sort of sensibility. It, it's something I can't really describe um, uh, of a reason that I put it on there. It's just chilling. And uh, I, 
it could ease it could, it could i just think it's a brilliant piece of work um so uh, I, I i decided to keep it on there at number two yeah yeah i definitely you know wouldn't have thought of it as a horror story at first but it's whether you think of it in the, in those terms or not it's an excellent story it is um the first time you read it you definitely get yeah yeah it, it, it makes you emotional yeah and wasn't there a twilight zone episode of it it was it was a double length episode and i think it won in some sort of award okay. um because it was like a the more serious toned uh episode and in a similar fashion uh kirk douglas appeared in a uh a tales from the crypt episode that was very much like um what was the movie oh man uh the world world paths of glory it was very similar to paths of glory yeah, uh, Dan Aykroyd was in it, um, and it won an award. Uh, it was a very serious. It was the only like serious Tales from the Crypt episode because they were dealing with sensitive, serious subjects. But yeah, yeah, there was, and, it, and it's a good episode of the Twilight Zone. But it's it's nothing like reading, uh, reading the short story. Sure. Well, um, this makes me suspicious. We may have picked the same number one, uh, the Monkey's Paw. No, that, no, no. Oh, that's one of your honorable mentions then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's my number one, The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. And one of the places to find that, it's in a bunch of places, but um, there's a wonderful anthology called Great Tales of Terror in the Supernatural. And it is edited by Wagner and Wise. And it is a wonderful collection of kind of late 19th, early 20th century, all kinds of diverse horror stories, you know, some more supernatural, some more kind of realistic suspense terror stories, some, you know, bunch of different subgenres, but has a lot of really good stories in it yeah. um, by a lot of authors that people know and many of you might not. But um, The Monkey's Paw, in my mind, it, it could, by our standards today, it could be written better in just like a, a grammar and syntax sort of a way. Um, it follows some conventions and things of like, whenever it was written hundred years ago or, or so I forget exactly when it was, when it was written, but uh, you know, British popular fiction of a hundred years ago, let's say maybe doesn't have exactly the same writing conventions. So, you know, some of the languages will strike a modern American reader as a little bit awkward, I think, but I think it's, it's a perfect masterpiece of setup and punchline. Yeah. And of, in a very short amount of time, establishing the problem, building the tension, and then resolving it, but resolving it in such a slick way that you never actually see the the threat and it's all in your mind's right, eye. Right. And yes. That's that's why I think it's such a classic and why it has inspired so many other things. Everything from Pet Cemetery. Yeah. To um, you know, there have been well, it various... sort of has the opposite opposite conclusion of Pet Cemetery, sort of, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And no, it's and, it's brilliant. And there there have been a lot of like episodes of of horror anthology TV shows and things that clearly are closely based on The Monkey's Paw. Um, so yeah, it's my pick for just the the most pure short horror story um, yeah. of all and time. My, look. I have I have one on my list that's on my runners up that's definitely influenced by it. Like I mean it's more just a more contemporary version, I would say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then what is your number one? Uh my number one is something totally different. It, I think it's my favorite piece of writing maybe ever. 
because the, the short story is probably my favorite medium, it, which is The Emissary by Ray Bradbury. Uh, you can find it in the 1947 Dark Carnival anthology, or it was reprinted in October Country, which is my favorite volume of short stories, uh, which is all Ray Bradbury, and they're all good. It's basically about a boy and his dog, and everything about it's amazing. Everything about it's amazing. It's it's quick. It's a quick read. You you develop an affection for the characters uh, almost immediately. The way he describes the the season of the fall, it's it's just unbelievable. Uh, it follows this boy Martin, uh, who's sick, and he his dog asks acts as his emissary and goes out into the world and brings back with him the smells of the seasons and sometimes visitors because Martin will send notes out. And it has a twist at the end that is so playfully childlike and creepy and scary that it is unbelievable. To me, the emissary is how it's a how to how you should write a short story. And it's, you can find it online. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant, and I think it's probably Ray Bradbury's very best. It's it's very reminiscent of something something wicked this way comes. Uh, so it's it's if you wanted to like encapsulate that down into like a quick uh, ten you know five ten page story, uh, this is what you're going to get uh, with the sensibilities anyway. So I just, I love it. I will definitely have to check it out. Ray Bradbury is one of those authors. I actually haven't read a ton of his short stories, but I have loved most of the ones that I've read. Yeah, he's so good. And, and so I always keep meaning to read more of his short stories. But again, you know, time is unfortunately a, a scarce resource when you've got a job and kids and <laughs> various other things you work on and whatever. But yeah, okay, that, that's definitely going near the top of my list to to check out well um a few uh honorable mentions i'd like to throw out for short stories that didn't quite make my top five um night crawlers by robert mccammon which also can be found in blue world sounds like you you know that one Mm -hmm. yep absolutely yeah that one is a horror story that also deals with uh aspects of ptsd caused by war Mm -hmm. and um very good story again blue world and by the way, the, the title story in Blue World um, is, I guess you'd call it either a, a novella or a novelette. It is very interesting and very good as well. The Festival, Cool Air, both by H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. Those are, those are another of my favorite two Lovecraft stories, The Festival and Cool Air. Uh, Young Goodman Brown by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which is easy to find all over the place. Southern Gothic horror? No, that's uh, New England, actually. Is it? Is that where I'm? I'm probably thinking of a different story. Oh, I'm gonna have to go back and look at that again. Yeah, it's like like most Hawthorne. It's it's uh, New England. New England, in New England. Yeah, yeah. Young Goodman Brown. I highly recommend it. It's okay. good stuff. The Raft by Stephen King, which is in Skeleton Crew. It's another one of my favorite Stephen King short stories. Okay. Um, one of the little mini movies in one of the Creepshow movies is The Raft. Then there's an older one that can also be found in that anthology I mentioned before, Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural by Wagner and, and Wise. And this, the story is, it's got a weird, awkward 19th century title, The Haunters and the Haunted or The House and the Brain. It's got one of those you know, <laughs> long or titles. 
um, instead of just a colon and a subtitle. And it's by an author. I don't know if I've ever read anything else by him called Edward Bulwer-Lytton, obviously British, hyphenated last name. Really, really good, creepy, haunting story. Um, Sleepy Hollow, of course, Legend of Sleeping, Sleepy Hollow, Washington Irving, which I yeah, guess might, yeah. might be considered a novelette, but whatever. Um, and one more that probably very few people have heard of that I love is a story called The Quest for Blank Claveringi. And it is written by an author, I don't know if I've read anything else by her, named Patricia Highsmith. And it's found in another anthology, Masterpieces of Terror in the Supernatural, edited by Marvin Kaye. And let me just put it this way. It is about giant carnivorous snails. (laughs) <laughs> which All sounds right. ridiculous it does but that's sometimes that makes for the best stuff but it's a hell of a short story it really <laughs> it it almost made my top five like by by a nose it it missed the top five it would be like number six so yeah highly recommended so um any honorable mentions you'd like to toss out for short stories yes uh the beautiful people by charles beaumont 1952 deals with like sort of I would say if you read it um, or you could watch the Twilight Zone version, they made they I think the number 12 looks just like me or something like that. Uh, Dystopian. It's like the smiley face dystopian future kind of thing. We've talked about that before. I think uh, when talking about fiction, about how on the surface it's supposed to be this amazing society, but there's just something so dark and disgusting and sinister about it. And Charles Beaumont was great at this. I think he was the most cerebral of the Southern California sorcerers. He was the most sort of fantastic uh, and science fiction oriented. But to me, it's, it's, it's a greater symbolism of if you read it more about like the loss of identity as you enter into adulthood and you sort of leave your, your, uh, individuality behind and be sort of consumed with things that adults care about. Uh, but it's told in a really creepy way. Um, and it's, it's just really disturbing, um, in a cerebral kind of way. There's no knife wielding maniac or anything like that. Uh, so the beautiful people, uh, second variety by Philip K. Dick, 1953, uh, has to deal with like, uh, cyborgs after a dystopian future again like the uh, big world war between the un and uh, the soviet union and uh, their the robots be are developed and they become self-aware and all this stuff and they end up developing themselves into things that look human so again go, <laughs> you can tell that's another theme that seems to creep me out is like cyborgs orgs and uh, imposters of some kind you could relate it to the thing you know in, in kind of a different way but it's just really creepy, really eerie, and a great piece by Philip K. Dick. Button, Button by Richard Matheson, 1970. And this is the one I would say is closer re- re- related to the monkey's paw. They, they did a film about it I for, called The Box, I think, with Cameron Diaz. I never saw it, you know, but I know it's based off the short story. Again, a Twilight Zone episode was based on this as well, also written by Richard Matheson, but it was a short story first. It's very quick. You know, basically, this couple's given a, a, a button by a mysterious stranger. If they press it, they'll receive $50,000, but someone um, that they don't know will never see somewhere in the world will die. And 
it's the twist at the end and is awesome. Like I love it. And it's just a great tale of morality, uh, written in thrift. So button, button, very good. Monkey's paw. We already talked about. And number one would be the next in line again by Ray Bradbury in dark carnival or the October country. Uh, it just, it's another one that's very open-ended and is supremely creepy. And I don't want to say has some truth to it, but the setting is very real that it takes place in. And it's a very creepy setting. And um, it's just, it's a great one to read like around Halloween uh, or, or, you know, share with your significant other or, or read to your kids because it's nothing too crazy, but it's still just super creepy and has a kind of a fun ending. So that would be, those would be my honorable mentions. I'll definitely have to look those up because I don't think I've read any of those. Yeah. Button, button button's great. So, okay. Well, I've got some, I've got some stuff to look up for sure. And I hope that the listeners have gotten some stuff to, to jot down, some stuff to look up on Amazon or Google or whatever. And that they'll have some good uh, seasonal reading and viewing and all that. Hopefully, at least some of the stuff we've mentioned. There's, there's got to be nobody out there who who knows all the books and stories and films we've mentioned that just can't yeah. be possible. So everybody's got to have at least gotten some pointers. But and man, this episode has run to like Joe Rogan experience. I know, I know. Length. But what are you going to do? I guess we should have anticipated. I thought that, it might know, go we, long. I mean, we were talking about doing 10. I mean, just we, we would still, still be on. Yeah. Movies. Yeah. 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 No discretion was the better part of something. <laughs> there, I guess. <laughs> but it, look, anytime uh, I can talk with you about this kind of stuff, you know, I love it. It's um, I'm more than, more than happy to talk about this anytime. I really, really enjoy discussing this kind of stuff and you know i could spend two hours just talking about one of these pieces of work like going into it so it's very difficult to whittle a whittle these lists down and then b talk you know what do you want to say about it you know you got 30 seconds bang it's like oh man i can't even get started on why this is so magnificent but at least hopefully it gives people out there who are curious as to maybe something they should watch within the next few days or maybe something they should read or maybe you know in twin peaks's case a little uh series they want to get into that might take them down a rabbit hole you know it's uh something you're gonna like something that one of us has covered yeah yeah absolutely well i'm very happy that uh i got you temporarily uh briefly out of podcast retirement to to come back on on the dangerous history podcast and talk some some uh halloween autumn ish related stuff you know the, the the stuff that we're both very passionate about aside from being anti-war and anti-empire and all that Absolutely. good stuff but um you know not everything is political although some of the stories we mentioned are but you know yeah but it's also like just having the common interests of being interested in the macabre and filmmaking and uh short stories and things like this and and you know both of us love to read and similar age i mean i think it makes for a good back and forth and again i'm i'm always uh, honored to be part of the part of the podcast uh, for an episode and anytime you want to do anything uh, i'm always game and i really enjoy your show keep doing what you're doing uh because i really uh love your content and and think you're doing fantastic work 
Well, thank you very much for that. And thanks for like spending almost half the day talking to me today. It's been been really fun and uh, hopefully the listeners will enjoy it. If they enjoy it even half as much as I have, then we're doing pretty good. Anytime, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. All right. And it was great to talk to Joshua. It's been, I don't even know, a couple of years probably, give or take, since we last spoke. And, you know, we had collaborated on a number of podcast episodes a while back, but then he had closed down the Dusty Den and we had sort of been out of touch for a while. But anyway, it was great to speak with him again. So thank you, Joshua, for coming back on the show. I really appreciated the conversation, and I hope the DHP audience does as well. And to all you listeners out there, have an awesome Halloween. enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, 
and you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. (laughs) 